Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Eric Cheneau. Eric is, according to his Bandcamp, a purveyor of jazz, folk and pop-inflected avant-garde ballandry, juxtaposing a warm, clear singing voice and fried, noised, semi-improvised guitar. Eric is one of those guitarists that you can hear for two seconds and you know that it's Eric. Especially when he's soloing, sounds like that his instrument is made of wax and he's playing in a warm room. All the notes are bending and sliding and drooping. It's got this slippery warmth to it. This eyes half shut, woozy, humid feel. And Eric's voice is just such a gorgeous, soft counterpart to that. His new album, Say Laura, is out on Constellation. As he mentions in this interview, the songs keep getting longer. There are these lovely, sprawling jams where Eric is able to indulge in solos that just keep nestling further into the sentiment. It's also a more spacious minimal record like it's built from the same amount of implements just sprinkled over a larger stretch of time and i loved speaking to eric there are some wicked anecdotes in here some excellent records too i really enjoyed listening to all three i think you're going to enjoy it so you can support the podcast at coffee ko-fi.com forward slash crucial listening and head over to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for a whole bunch of back episodes and links associated with all the episodes, including this one. Thank you for your support. As always, it means a lot. Please enjoy this conversation with Eric Cheneau on Crucial Listening. So- Hello, Eric. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. So we're going to talk about your three important albums. Before we get there, I want to talk about your new album, Say Laura, which will have just come out I think by the time this comes out. So firstly, I'm wondering if you could tell me about the very beginnings of making this record. I mean, was there like a notion, a concept, a melody or something that kind of sparked the process for this album? What did the start of this one look like? Well, there are two ways to answer that question, or there are many ways, I imagine. One is that I just started writing, and then I decided that at some point this... that I usually write thinking that these songs will be, at some point, a record. Um, but to take your question a little bit more seriously, I would say that there was one... One thing I wanted to investigate more than 
than anything else, which was the relationship between the instrumental passages and the song, the the vocal melody. I was thinking about Thelonious Monk a lot and how when he solos, he really just continues to play the melody. He never, he does not really go completely out, uh, mm. in quotation marks. He, the, the melody is always there. He's deconstructing it, ornamenting it, uh, leaving stuff out. But for the most of his, of his recorded output, uh, you really just hear the melody being transfigured and and modulated and and played with played with being the the most interesting to me and so i f- i wanted to try to figure out some ways that i could investigate that and one of the ways that i ended up doing that was doing a scratch vocal uh, during the especially in the first and last songs of the record where you have basically two the song is the two those two songs are split in two uh the first half of each being the entire form sung with the lyrics and the vocal melody and then the entire form again instrumentally and i sung the song twice uh, I sang the song twice, uh, again for the second uh, part of those songs, and played over uh, in my headphones that I could hear the scratch vocal, which was then obviously removed huh. um, for the listening public. Um, and I can really hear it. I can really hear a difference. The time of the song moves forward in a way, in a similar way to when the the human voice is, is singing. And in some ways, it, it keeps my attention in between the playfulness of the guitar and the form of the song. And I really enjoy listening to that. I really, I, I mean, I really, I think it, it worked to it's something that I probably will continue to, to, to try and do. And now when I'm playing this, the, this music live, uh, because uh, the recording process for me involves a lot of, of rehearsing, not so much to get it tight, but in fact, the, quite the opposite to get it loose. <laughs> to be able to improvise freely and within the form of a song for me, it takes quite a lot of time. I need to, to digest the time and space of the song. Hmm. Um, and that takes time for me. And so, yeah, I would say that with this record, I, I, that that's probably one thing that changed, uh, as opposed to other records that I've made where when I start playing, I kind of just, go um, and perhaps lose a little bit of where I am in the song. And I like that sound too. But on this record, I decided to take a different approach or a different uh, conceptual approach to the relationship between the uh, guitar uh, improvisations and the um, vocal melody. What's interesting when you say that is it sounds like that 
so it's as you say you were less getting lost within the song which i tend to associate that kind of experience with songs of longer duration i haven't done like a direct comparison between like say this record and some of your previous ones that i have an affinity with but it feels like these songs are like longer on average than say in your of your previous yeah work. they just keep getting longer and longer <laughs> if i weren't constrained by um the lp format um i have no idea how long these songs would end up being <laughs> um i really uh i have no idea why any song that i like ever stops uh, <laughs> yeah right <laughs> all music is too short for me uh-huh um you know if you want to stop listening you just turn it off i I'm not a big i'm not a huge uh well we're going to get into this with a couple of the things i want I to listen say, to but yeah. um uh because there are a couple in there that uh that betray that notion a little bit but um i like getting lost in the middle of mm-hmm. the songs as a listener i'm talking about and maybe as a when i'm playing too the beginnings and the endings to me are kind of like brute necessities yes uh yeah yeah totally i'm with you another thing actually that i noted from i think it was at an interview that you did around slowly paradise was that you mentioned the movement of your music form the basis of like your main critique of your past work and that it didn't move like you wanted it to uh sounds mm. like the way that you've approached this new record has had a discernible effect on how the record moves through time but is your music now starting to move as you want it to hmm as i want it to it's a bit um i'm not really sure i, I it gets closer mm-hmm I'm really slow with any idea of progress or or reaching towards something. Um, I like to take very small steps with each record. I have ideas in my mind of where it might go, um, and these obviously may change as my life changes. But um, yeah, with I would say so. I think that I think that you might be right. I think that uh, that the movement um, that we're talking about definitely uh, comes from the idea of of, of soloing over a, uh, over my singing voice, so that I can hear the the cadences of the voice tell me that new new chords are coming, that new harmonies are coming, Mm. and I can kind of cadence along with them with the guitar. And those cadences are most definitely forward moving. Um, I also think that it might be a little bit to do with the rhythms of the, of the, of these songs, which are a little bit more forward in motion as well. Yes. So you use the, boss drum machine right to as a, as a kind of yeah. basis yeah yeah that opened everything up because before i was using a sequencer that was stuck in um you know quarter note like straight time mm-hmm. and with the drum machine i can some of the beats like the beat for there they were the fourth track on the record 
the beat is four and a half minutes long before it repeats. Oh, wow. Uh, and that, I mean, it's impossible to know where I, when I'm playing it live, I have no idea where I am in that beat, <laughs> but I can kind of get a sense of the pulse and the general downbeat. Mm. And the time signature of that one is one, one, as opposed to four, four, or it's really just, and it's something, it's an idea that I was very much influenced by Martin Carthy when he was talking about traditional music and that the time signature of all traditional music is one, one, which is why he has such a gorgeous fat downbeat. And we're going to get to that too with some <laughs> things we're going to listen to. One final question on Say Laura is, it also feels like a, a record that's more spacious than previous mm. ones. I mean, certainly your voice, I think, occupies what a, a, a greater degree of space within the music and I wonder whether or not that necessitated you approaching your vocals differently or made you think about what melodies might work best in this context well we're going to get into that with the Betty Carter record <laughs> um, yeah. but uh, yeah I would say that there's more space that was a very conscious decision actually uh, thanks for bringing that up um I did a lot less guitar overdubbing mm -hmm. on this one. I really wanted it to be a kind of strange trio, a hypothetical trio between the voice, the rhythm, uh, the rhythm, which is also harmonic because it, the rhythm is, is spewing out the chords. Mm. Um, and try and be a little bit more concise with what the guitar was going to be doing. On Slowly Paradise, for the most part, there are two guitars going at once on almost every song. Mm -hmm. And on the last song of that record, Wild Moon, I didn't do that. And that song really was the bridge between kind of where, how I was thinking about recording at that time and where I wanted to go with thinking about um, Say Laura. And there was something very, a kind of only what is needed in quotation marks mm. um, about Wild Moon that had that song stick in my head a lot more than the others and made it a real, it seemed conceptually clear to me. It seemed mm -hmm. really clear. And I wanted to bring that clarity to a whole batch of songs on this record, which, you know, for the most part I did. There's one song that has a whack of different stuff going on, but uh, I think it's um, it's a little bit more, a little less um, soundscapey, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I would agree with you there. So let's go to important records, Eric. And one question I ask at this point is, how you thought about the word important in order to pick these three records so was there a way that you interpreted importance to come up with the list that you did i'll be honest with you i didn't give it much thought um <laughs> as opposed as I, I i know that uh i basically thought about three records that would be interesting to talk about mm -hmm. not necessarily i mean there are so many records obviously that any person has in their life that mean a lot to them and that become uh, 
very uh, rich friendships mm -hmm. that, um, that we live with um, and that change along with us, that we carry with us along with our, in our lives. And, and um, I decided to try to think about three records that would be interesting to talk about in different ways. Often I cite a lot of more obscure jazz records uh, and a lot of contemporary uh, experimental, uh, contemporary composed music mm -hmm. um, as because those are records I can really think about as records. And this time for this, uh, for this podcast, I wanted to try to talk about three different kinds of records um, for very various reasons. And we'll get into those, I imagine. Cool. So which one do you want to go with first? Let's start with Inside Betty Carter by nice. Betty Carter. Cool. So could you give me a little introduction as to why this one is important to you? She has the single most mind-blowing human voice I've ever heard. <laughs> She's my favorite singer of all time. Um, she stops my heart and mind every single time I listen to her and I listen to her. There are rarely days where I don't listen to something by Betty Carter, by Betty Mae Carter. She was a jazz singer in the 50s, 60s, uh, 70s, and 80s. And um, she, had, she was nicknamed Betty Bebop by Charlie Parker. Mm. And uh, anyone who's ever heard her scat uh, can know why, uh, she, her, her ability to improvise, um, without words was, was, was um, mind blowing. But for me, the, the stuff that I really love is just when she sings ballads, um, talking about cadences, talking about the voice, uh, like you were a few minutes ago, there is so much from her voice that I have just ripped off and stolen <laughs> um so many cadences so many ways that phrase phrases fall um and this record was the first record i heard by her and it is my favorite uh though uh it is an endless catalog of delights her repertoire but this one's got a lot of ballads on it mm -hmm. and it's a great band and it's just beautiful I would I would say that I've been marked and scored by the most by singers. Um, it's my favorite instrument, that's for sure. Uh, and all of my music comes from singing. The guitar is, in a way, a, um, I hum it internally as I'm playing. Huh. Um, and a lot of the ways I've developed... Uh, bending strings and using the wah-wah is all very kind of vocal influenced. And Betty Carter's mouth and her the way that she uses her mouth as a, as this kind of cavern. She opens her mouth really any If you go and watch a video of her singing, I mean, you can see how she... It, I mean, it's basically a, a Wawa, her mouth. It, it's insane what she's, how she's able to, to kind of project so many 
fine frequencies coming out mm. of her mouth, singing these gorgeous tunes she's got. She, she's, she wrote some beautiful tunes as well. But yeah, this record is just in, is insane. It, totally insane to me. Do you remember how you first came into her music? I think I might remember the first time I heard it. It was probably at a a music space um, uh, where uh, we used to perform quite a bit in Toronto. Uh, me and a whack of folks in Toronto. And my friend and uh, musical comrade, Ryan Driver, put it on on the stereo as we were uh, setting up. Or I don't even know if I was playing that night, but, you know, we were setting up the PA. I don't remember. And just her voice, I was just like, holy, holy shit. This is, here we go. You know, it's kind of like, it was a bit like seeing somebody across the room and knowing that you're going to fall hard for this person. Mm. And you're maybe even a little terrified because you know your life's going to change. Right. That sounds a little over the top, but uh, but anyways, it it floored me instantly, instantly, and it was this record that I first heard. And how long ago was was that? Probably about nineteen ninety two. No, two thousand and two. Two thousand and two. Gotcha. Yeah. Right, so coming up on twenty years of yeah. having Betty Carter in your life. So, how was your relationship with their music changed after that point that initial discovery uh the ways that yeah are there are there ways in which you, you you've noticed your your relationship or appreciation of the music develop i th- i uh, i would say that actually if i were to play one of her songs right now that the i would say nothing has changed uh-huh. it's just it's uh, it's unknowable to me completely the playfulness mixed with the beauty mixed with this kind of lighthearted heartbreak that I hear in her cadences is something that I, I can't hold. I can't hold it and know it. So I would say, I would say this about any of the records we're going to play and mm. many more, rec- you know, thousands of records where that initial hallucination that you experience that you encounter when you hear something that is so strange and beautiful to you is something that that continues Uh, and those records that stick with you are they stick with you not because you know them yes and in that way they really are like friendships you know one one of the beautiful things about friendships is that those friends that just stick to you like glue there there's something about them you don't know there's something about your friend that you never know that you don't want to change mm-hmm. um and that unknowability perhaps is becomes comforting more or less hopefully um but that the psychedelia of that experience hopefully remains mm. and uh, with betty carter that is most certainly the case are there any particular ballads or any particular tracks generally on this record that would you think back to listen to it now 
protrude for you as favorites or just really notable in your mind from this record yeah um well i i decided uh beforehand that i would like to hear i think it's the third track Uh uh-huh and it's called beware my heart and i chose it because the opening the opening of her voice on this record is completely insane to me (laughs) And she sings the word beware my heart in a way that um, is absolutely uh, psychedelic to me. You mentioned riffing on some of the cadences that Betty Carter uses within her music. I mean, on Spring Can Really Hang You Up the Most, the way she starts that song. um, Yeah, that would have been my second choice. It's my favorite song on the record and potentially Uh, my favorite vocal performance of all time. Wow. I mean, can you unpack that for me? Is there something, anything specific that, that makes it that way? Well, the song is completely nuts. I mean, <laughs> the form that her arrangement is completely nuts. Um, the song itself is completely, the melody is, in, the melodies are, are crazy. The lyrics are stunning. I mean, there's a lyric on there, um, there's many sulfur and molasses. Oh, no, doctors used to doctors once prescribed a tonic. Sulfur and molasses was the dose, but it didn't help a bit. Spring can really hang you up the most, and that is just that's. A, I mean, this is a jazz ballad. And, and that's just, you know, that is, um, that is a, and the way she sings, it's hard to, it's really hard to separate it from, from her performance. Mm. Um, but I mean, the the song is just out there. I mean, it's so gorgeous and, um, I don't know what else to say about it. It's crazy, crazy. I have put that. I've just, I, I made a, a conscious decision to stop putting it on playlists because it was on every single playlist that I made <laughs> for either friends or for, for podcasts or, uh, for 10 years, it was on every single, and I'm like, okay, I think I have to make it, I think I have to bar this song from, from that. <laughs> I mean, at some point, you know, there's probably a one or two people that have listened to most of those playlists and they don't need to hear it in every single context <laughs> and, yeah. and you know it opens up space for other for other things so nice um but yeah that song is uh, that's a desert island song for me for sure because yeah that's really the one that stuck out and and like i say yeah. the, the very opening when she goes like spring like that is um, yeah i yeah that's yeah that's a yeah, that's just nuts. Yeah, that's just completely nuts. And in fact, hearing that song was the first was the I wrote a song directly after that was that was probably the first song that could be considered my take on a jazz standard, which is kind of how I write all my songs now. Mm. Which I write them very kind of like a jazz lead sheet, uh, the melody and the chords, so that they could be played very. Uh, by uh, you know a lounge band or something Mm. and that's kind of how that's kind of the form in which I write and that one um, 
after hearing that song, within a couple of days, I had written um, a song called I See Warm Weather Rolling In that is very much inspired by, by, that, by how I felt uh, about that song. Let's go to your second important album now. Which one do you want to go for? Let's go with something um, somewhat completely different. And uh, let's go to The Glass Trunk by Richard Dawson. Yeah. Yeah. A record that uh, many, many of your listeners know. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to, to talk about it. I wanted to talk about something maybe a little less obscure. Hmm. And why is it one that's important to you? Well, I think it's a masterpiece, but plain and simple, full stop. Mm. I love everything that Richard has done. I've seen him live many times um, in various uh, guises, uh, solo and with his uh, trio. Um, But this record is straight up a masterpiece um, for a million reasons. One being form. I I just think he nailed something with the a cappella, the a cappella tunes, and the uh, guitar and electric harp um, instrumentals that are at once kind of so different, and one relieves the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're kind of constantly swaying between these two worlds, and and yet those two worlds have a have a kind of no man's land between them yes that you that starts to form and i just think it's uh it's a marvel of a record and uh you know his voice is is nuts as well mm. his lyrics are 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 at once hilarious and heartbreaking um and on this record there's Although he doesn't really sound like Robert Wyatt, um, there's something to me that he's one of the first people I, I've heard that I could actually say reminds me of him. And it's because he allows his Englishness to come out. Yeah. And you don't hear that. It's weird how, you know, you you listen to Nick Cave and he could be from Tennessee. I love Nick Cave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, Robert Wyatt was kind of, you know, there's Ivor Cutler, obviously. There's lots of people who sound, you know, the Beatles don't sound English to me. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Mick Jagger, most most deaf, does not sound English to me. Um, and I love uh, Mick Jagger with all of my heart. But um, there's something about hearing Robert Wyatt sing something like, um, I don't know, just choose any, like, like uh what is the song called sleep from sleep or heaps of sheep uh-huh. from the record sleep and it's that 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 english tenor that comes out that's just it's just bloody heartbreaking to me mm. and it also speaks to 
the relationship that he may have with his own voice, that he really found that the way to use his voice that no one could do. I think everybody has potentially or hypothetically an amazing singing voice. And uh, you just have to find what it is your voice wants to do mm-hmm. and listen to it. And I feel like, you know, that, that, that Robert Wyatt had obviously done that work. You hear this kind of n- natural sound world of a voice a lot in a lot of traditional musics. Um, a voice I'm thinking about a lot right now as she passed last week is Norma Watterson. Um, and her, along with uh, a lot of her uh, friends from that time, also had that. Anne Briggs had that. Mm. Martin Carthy certainly has that. Um, Norma's daughter, Eliza, has that. Uh, Mike Watterson has, I mean, all of them, Lau Watterson, all the Watersons mm. have that. But in pop music or, in, you know, for better or for worse, the uh, the in pop music there seems to be this thing where, where this striving for a kind of um, non geographic placement of the human voice or internationalism, I would call it, kind of the international sound, which is just I guess American um, for all of the worst reasons. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, with, with, with Richard, that's just shattered. It's like, you know, he's from Newcastle, I believe. Um, and that's where his voice comes from. It comes from, from there and it makes it more specific. It creates ornaments and timbres that no other voice will have. And, uh, I mean, he reminds me a lot of Mike Watterson, who has that as well. And in fact, on this record, I think he, he sings a English folk tune that he may have learned from, from Mike Watterson. Oh, right. And yeah, what was that? What's that song called? The Brisk Lad, I think. Mm-hmm. The Brisk Lad, which is something that Mike Watterson sang. And Richard does a, a, a sinisterly beautiful version of on that record yeah they're good adjectives for richard i i also find as you know someone who encounters a lot of music that's by british people i guess conveying british experience there's something very relaxed a matter of fact about richard's lyrics uh, that that, that Mm -hmm. feel very reflective of a british day out in a completely non-romantic way but yeah, a trip to the museum and an ice cream on the way home. Um, that's the song I was gonna pick. No, really, that song How come? is that's devastating song. Mm. I mean, because he, he he the other reason I wanted to talk about this is because, I mean, he you hear these songs and they sound kind of like an a cappella English folk tune. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though some of the ways he's you know some of the th- it's some pretty strange uh, vocal um, places. He goes stray a little bit from that, but it's almost like he's digested that music and then created an entire new hypothetical world where he 
shares his love for that music and at the same time uh, composes into it mm-hmm. in a way that is so interesting. And yeah, they're so, they're a matter of fact, I mean, there, there's a lot of playful kind of, and also self-referential, uh, not self as in Richard himself, but within the song, um, lyrics that he does uh, write. And then he just sings them out. It's it, it's impossible to really um, separate the lyrics from the way in which he performs them. Mm-hmm. Because so much of it comes from just how open he is with with the melody and open with the the lyrics, um, to the point where it it doesn't sound to me like he wrote them at all. He's singing them with the joy of, the, of somebody who who found them. Yeah, you know. Um, there's this kind of, and that I mean that <clears throat> that's the key to so much beautiful music. It's the key to the blues. You know, Robert Johnson wrote those lyrics, but you'd never know it. Uh, Skip James wrote his lyrics for the most part, I imagine. And they sound like something they stumbled upon and were in wonder by, in wonder of. And they sing them with that joy of stumbling across something beautiful and sharing it. And you really, really, you get that on the records and you get that live where you feel like uh, that Richard is sharing something he loves with you instead of um, hoping you uh, think he's great or hoping that um, (laughs) you like what he's composed. It sounds like somebody going, hey, look at this. And, And that creates a social space um, that is is profound for, you know, especially for a music that is composed that is that is not he's not an, necessarily an, an English folk singer though he certainly can do that. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's uh, this that record is. I know why, or you know, I can fully understand why he decided that he would start playing with bands and stuff like that and. And that those are, are amazing records and wonderful live shows, but to f- I I just have this huge soft spot for for the form and the and the music of his of his solo performances. Yeah, yeah, me too. One thing I guess I should mention because it feels very connected to your the point you just made about the fact that he's feels like he's sharing something is. The background of this record, by the sounds of it, is he was invited by Tyne and Ware archives and museums to pour through their collections and then write 30 mm-hmm. minutes of music based on whatever he could find. It sounded like he, from what I've seen him write about that experience, that he really dove in and soaked up all of those stories that he picked up. Um, I guess that is what he's doing is bringing these stories to people and saying, wow, this is an incredible anecdote and I'm going to sing it to you. Yeah, I mean, I think I remember reading that too. I'd forgotten it, so thanks for reminding me. But I mean, we could say the same thing about anything from his newest record, well, the last Richard Dawson record, the 2021, Mm. I think it's called. Um, I think it, it shares the same, that same wonder of sharing 
um, no matter what he's writing about. I mean, that's the great thing is that a great singer can sing anything, right? Yeah. You know, they can sing anything because the joy of their, the relationship between them and their voice is one of pure joy Mm. and, um, not so much steeped in, um, representation or, or things revolving around one's narcissism. Um, Mm. but something much more social than that. And obviously, I mean, you'd have to be dead to not hear that in Richard's performances. (laughs) One other thing I wanted to pick up on this one is, it's funny when you search both your names together, you get a lot of people drawing a parallel between Hmm. you both as artists, which uh, I find curious and sort of set my mind going as to like what they were picking up on. I mean, I suppose maybe like an idiosyncratic crooked, I don't know if that's the right word, approach to playing the guitar. I mean, I've seen in your, uh, another interview you did that you talk about the emphasis on unamplified electric guitar. I mean, that feels like a prominent aspect of Richard's work as well, right? I mean, his, his guitar playing as well, a source of connection with his music for you? Absolutely. I'm really glad you brought that out. I could have, I'm, I seem to be, um, it's Sunday here. It's Sunday there. And uh, so I'm in, uh, seem to be thinking about the human voice a lot today. But I mean, the guitar playing is, he's, he, it's virtuosically nuts. I mean, and it sounds like beef heart. Those, yes, those, yeah. um, you know, it really, it's easy to say, oh, it sounds like beef heart when you hear a bit of angularity. And and specificity, because uh, Beefheart's uh, guitar parts were written out. Hmm. Um, but it re it what it shares with with Beefheart, or even I might say something like the Shags, um, yes. is the ab- the insane counterpoint that is happening, the detail in the way that um, the melodic lines flow uh, that is pretty rare uh, Mm. for a guitar player. I mean, he's an insane guitar player and he plays wildly, Mm. unrestrained. Um, And that's where I I hear the, the relationship, I hear the kind of glue that puts the guitar, uh, the guitar and harp, the harp being played by Rodri Davies, also an insanely yes. beautiful musician, um, and uh, with with his vocal performances, there's this just kind of unapologetically. There's a boom to it, and I don't mean a boom necessarily in terms of volume, though. He's not the quietest singer in the world, and <laughs> certainly not the quietest guitar player in the world. Um, but I mean a I mean a boom a little bit more psychedelically than that. Something that just, it seems to just explode from the earth. Mm-hmm. And um, it's gnarly and beautiful and strange. And ideas of harmonious and uh, dissonant kind of wash away. Um, 
the, the kind of binary uh, idea about what is um, consonant and what is dissonant seem to disappear, and the whole thing just seems wild to mm-hmm. me. Um, and and uh, kind of um, yeah, wild is the only word I can come up with today. The other reason I chose the Richard Dawson. Because when, when we played together um, a few times, but the first time was in Copenhagen at Alice, or it wasn't called Alice at the time, it was called something else, but what was the jazz something in Copenhagen. And I walked into the room and he had already, he was already there and he was wearing a Sun Ra t-shirt. And one of my, one of the most beautiful things on this planet to me is the music of Sun Ra. And, um, I also chose this record because usually I bring a Sun Ra record into these conversations. And so instead of doing that, I decided to talk to some, to somebody who loves Sun Ra and he most certainly does (laughs) as do I, um, I'm not sure you can really hear it in his music so specifically, but he digests his influences uh, so idiosyncratically, and that's another thing that's beautiful about him. Child on the head, answer to us this exhibition is the first of its kind in the country. He led us through a hallway into a foisty room boasting a dazzling array of animals fishes and birds let's go to your final important record then eric what have we got the next record is called stain ballads by the composer and musician based in Toronto named Martin Arnold. And I probably, what can I say about this record is I could have chosen anything Hmm. um, by Martin. Uh, He's, he makes to me the most beautiful music I've ever heard and has influenced me in, in so many profound ways that I can't even, I wouldn't be making the music I make. I wouldn't be making the music I make if it weren't for Martin's music and also what Martin's a, a dear friend of mine, and uh, we have a record label together and have played in numerous guises together in Toronto, and just being around him and uh, and uh, hearing him talk about music is something that um, I think anyone who has would say is something that's pretty profound and beautiful. This record I chose because it's come out on uh, a record label, which is probably my fa- my favorite record label, Another Timbre, um, coming out of the UK, that puts out uh, a lot of great contemporary uh, composed music and some improvised music as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Martin's music is, I hear everything. And I really mean that. I hear everything that I love in Martin's music. 
I hear Ars Nova, like 14th century French uh, polyphony. I hear um, the Watersons. I hear Eliza Carthy. I hear Marvin Gaye. I, I, everything that I love, uh, Isaac Hayes. I hear beautiful lounge music. I hear psychedelic musics of all kinds. And it's melodious, it's harmonious, and it's strange. I remember playing uh, Martin's first string quartet, um, Contact Vault, for a friend of mine. This must have been in the late 90s or, or around 2002. And he's like, this sounds like pop music to me. And my first thought was like, what pop music? <laughs> I would love to hear any pop music that this sounds like. And, and I really didn't understand what he was talking about. I mean, if you listen to his music to say that it sounds like pop music is kind of strange. <laughs> but I think I might know what he means in that it's beautiful. And pop music at its best is really beautiful too it's uh, and it's i guess the melodic and harmonic material that does that um and it's full of detail it's it swings and sways uh, gracefully and it's a music that uh, luckily uh is starting to get heard more and more thanks to another timbre Thanks to the Bazzini Quartet and thanks to Apartment House hmm. um, out of London, who are all becoming champions of uh, Martin's music. You saw them perform Stain Ballads right over here in London. Yeah, how yeah. did you know that? I think you wrote it somewhere. Um, oh, did I? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Nothing too creepy. Oh, I thought it's, maybe it's you were there. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you were there. Uh, yeah. I, I I actually created a tour. This is how much I love Martin Arnold. <laughs> I knew he, that this piece was going to be performed in. Do you? I think it is it the Queen Elizabeth Hall. Yeah. Some, gorgeous. Uh, yeah. Gorgeous hall, and that apartment house was going to do it. Uh, with uh, a, a, the repertoire of that night was also something I wanted to hear, but and I knew Martin was going to be there for his, for that. And I live in France now. Martin lives in Toronto, and I thought oh, I'd love to be there and uh, listen to that piece with Martin and um, and just be there for it. And so mm. I actually created a tour of the UK so that I would be there. <laughs> and I would pay, pay my way to to go here. Um, the public premiere of uh, Stain Ballad. How, what are your memories of that experience, seeing that perform live? It was amazing because there was a lot of people, a lot more people than I, than um, are usually at uh, that kind of thing, um, especially in Toronto. Um, and the hall was great. And also to be, I'd heard Martin's music so many times in Toronto, being with a whack of people that I knew very well. Mm. And to be here in, a, in it just seemed kind of uh, glorious to be able to hear it along with people who 
potentially didn't know his music as well. And along with um, uh, other pieces um, composed by many of his peers, that um, composers that I know he loves, and to kind of hear it in that context. And the, the piece is, is crazy beautiful. It, there are things happening in it that I haven't quite heard formally in some of his other pieces, though it sh one could say that he's kind of uh, kind of like Derek Bailey. You, you, you know, his all of his pieces are of a piece. Hmm. Um, or even somebody like Steve Lacey, where it's even hard, it's really hard to know you know, there's no, not necessarily an early, late, mid or late period, um, Martin Arnold there, they all share something. He's dedicated. His music comes out of a singular experiment mm -hmm. and, um, he sticks to it. Um, not necessarily, um, with tension. I mean, he doesn't hold on to something, but, um, there are a lot of similarities between, all of his musics, whether it's his composed music or even when he's playing fuzz guitar in the Ryan Driver Sextet, a beautiful lounge, uh, lounge psychedelic lounge jazz group in Toronto. You mentioned that he wouldn't be making the music you're making if it wasn't for Martin. What mm. did his music enable for you to allow you to make the music you're making? Oh man, I don't know if we have time for this. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, it, so much of it is about, uh, uh, as an epiphany, it was hearing his first string quartet and, uh, not unlike the Betty Carter epiphany, it was a relationship with the beautiful hmm. and how the beautiful need not be maudlin and it need not be separated from something strange or psychedelic. Mm-hmm. And that is something that uh, potentially at that time I had been kind of fighting with um, because I have a lot of uh, my, my natural instincts lead me towards things that are very pretty. But I think I struggled with a kind of reverence for the beautiful and also uh, I, um, and how to fit in uh, a, a kind of experimentation uh, within that, that wasn't tacked on or at odds. And Martin's music is most certainly like uh, the best uh, tutorial on that. <laughs> um, but it was also, you know, listening to records with Martin and hearing him talk about them, hearing Martin talk about the shags, hearing Martin talk about English tra traditional music. Um, he's an, he's, he's an amazing thinker too. And it's hard to separate. Um, he's influenced a lot of people, um, not even necessarily with his music, but the way he listens, he's a, he's one of those people you want in the audience. Because you know someone's listening hard. <laughs> and yeah. you know that, you know, at the end of the night, he'll have things to say that that will teach you something. I mean, not in the, you know, um, he's not trying to be a, a 
teacher. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. But he shares his his he shares the way he listens with people in a kind of in a beautiful way that I cannot in any way um, um, separate from how I hear his music. There's a lot about rhythm. There's a lot about melody. Um, there's a lot about form in his music that I've learned um, about trying to. Uh, critique certain narrative forms that that leave less space for the listener. Um, I think lis- the idea of composing as a listener is something that you know I was put into words for me by him. Hmm. Uh, his interviews are amazing. Um, <laughs> his writing is great. Whether he's writing about music or contemporary art or. Um, he has a pretty psychedelic way of, um, of listening and seeing that, um, yeah, has had a huge, has left a huge mark on me and a lot of others, uh, a lot of my friends. The thing I'm getting from my early acquaintance with his music, I mean, I hadn't heard any of his stuff before you recommended it, Eric, so thanks for putting it in my direction too, but hearing you talk now and accompanying with my experiences listening, there seems to be like, he sort of seems to be bringing about a a categorical impurity, which seems really healthy. Right. So you talk Mm. about his reference to his music as pop music. And I, I I guess that's a reference to facets within it, which are deemed pop, even if the whole doesn't, you know, tick every box. I've also seen him on a similar note talk about Stane Ballads as dance music. And I wondered if you mm-hmm. had any thoughts about that. Do you hear it as dance music as well? Or do you see kind of where he's coming from when he says that? Ah, well, thanks to Martin, I hear everything is dance music. <laughs> and I have spent many, many, many hours dancing in Karen Henderson's living room. Um... <laughs> dancing uh, with people and Martin to dance music. And that's a blast. I mean, this is a guy that loves dance music, uh, you know. Um, but he's talking, I think, I don't, I can't really, I can't uh, really say exactly what he's talking about with that. But I think he's talking about a kind of movement mm. and a kind of um, nomadicism of listening. And that listening in a way is as a form uh, dancing as a as a form of listening um and one that is quite psychedelic it's one in in a relationship to a body mm. less as a relationship to one's comprehension in the mind a cerebral a uh, relationship to listening which can happen at the same time too mm. um uh but i hear what he's saying and i've heard him dance and um and uh, I've seen him dance. Did I just say I heard him dance? <laughs> I think I think that might be more true. Yeah. <laughs> I think with his music, we hear him dancing. Yeah, I'll stick with that, actually. That's more true. I've seen him dance, too, but it's less true right now. Um, one other thing I noticed is that you've reprised your label with Martin, Rat Drifting, like only at the end of Indeed. last year. So how did that come back? Um... Someone asked, uh, a friend of mine asked me to. Also, 
Bandcamp has created um, a form that I actually quite love. And it uh, there's a lot of forms of new digitization that I'm not the hugest fan of. Um, but this one I really like. And uh, it seemed easy. And the first idea was just to put up the um, old catalog so that people could hear it. Um, kind of as a as an historical matter of a time period in Toronto, improvised and experimental and pop music. Um, but then once you start doing something like that, you know, you get the itch. And there was uh, a couple recordings that we wanted to put up there. I made the decision to make it only digital because it would allow me to release anything. Yes. Um, even if it had no money behind it. Um, and I think it will remain that way. Um, I flirted with the idea of, of making physical things, but I know my laziness well enough that I know that it would hinder a kind of, um, openness to releasing things that, that may not sell very well or might, you know, I'd have to make decisions based on other, um, criteria mm -hmm. that I'm not interested in with, with rat drifting, um, and I'm re we just released three records that are just stunning records uh, to me. And um, I am really happy to be doing it. It's, um, it's a fun little thing to do. I'll pop a link in the show notes so that people can check out the catalogue. Sweet. One final question for you, Eric, is you mentioned you listen to a, a lot of music, have a lot of important records in your life. Do you have mm -hmm. a favourite or most frequent means of listening to music? Is there a place you like to do it most fondly? A situation? Yeah. I, uh, there are two that I, I think I can speak of. One is um, while travelling. Mm -hmm. with headphones on a train. Uh, not so much on the street. I find that a little harsh and a bit disconnected. If I'm walking through a park, perhaps, um, but on a train, uh, just kind of glazing my eyes out the window, not really looking at anything and just listening to music uh, can be pretty great. At home, I have a hammock in my studio, in the middle, hanging between two <laughs> wooden pillars. And that's probably my favorite way to listen to music now. Um, lay in the hammock and, and put on a record. I do that. A lot. I love listening to music while cooking too. And mm. I cook a lot. But that's a different kind of thing. Um, periphery listening to a degree. Um, but yeah, laying down in the hammock and listening... Um, I remember one very p 
potent uh, moment. I was in Berlin. This is about 14 years ago. And I was walking through, what's the name of the huge garden in the middle of Berlin? Uh, garden something. I forget. Yeah, the yeah. The, the, the major, that central garden. And I was listening to Robert Ashley's uh, Private Parts. The prob- the whole, I think it took me the whole record to walk through that park. <laughs> and I was walking towards a record store on the other side of Berlin, an experimental record store. And uh, I had been listening, as I said, to Robert Ashley's uh, Private Parts, a record that could have easily been on this list. But um, I've talked so much about it uh, that, I, again, I wanted to talk about something else. But it's, you know, in the probably one of the top three records of my life. Walking through the garden, listening to Robert Ashley, having one of another kind of moment of kind of psychedelic... Uh, listening and it finishes kind of you know about 15 20 seconds before i reach the record store i open the record store um door and i hear this voice say where should i put my jacket and it's the exact same voice i'd just been listening to for 45 minutes because it was robert ashley's voice and he was there to give a talk about his graphic scores and I had no idea. Oh, my um, God. I mean, Robert Ashley uh, lived in New York. We're in Berlin. I had, you know, had <laughs> no idea. I walk, I, and so I walk in. I I still have the headphones in my, and I actually look, and I'm like, is this, what is it? I had no idea if it was coming from my headphones or not. It was, the voice was a little bit more aged. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, he has such a, particular uh speaking voice mm-hmm. um quite famously and i was so shocked that i just turned around and walked back home walked back to where i was wow. i didn't stay for the talk uh which is insane because i, I would have <laughs> loved to have heard him talk about that um i had spent an hour on walking through to get to the store to buy some records i did neither and i just turned around uh put the private parts back on and walked through the, the garden again and, you know not really a regret because actually the whole thing was kind of amazing, but it did show me a little bit about myself, <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, that, you know, it, it showed me how I, how I deal with, um, with trauma in a, in a way <laughs> right. that I wasn't prepared for. But, um, yeah, so, uh, kind of listening can, can, can happen in very strange places and, and, uh, uh one can't always know when it's going to happen <laughs> what a great place to to end eric thank you so much i've loved talking about both your new record and also these three important ones thank you well, it's been a real pleasure for me too thanks a lot and to everyone listening and see you next time goodbye